when you're on a table in a hospital and the doctor tells you you're going to die, there are only two responses. The first response is to get very afraid and then die. The second response is fuck you. I wasn't ready to die, so the fuck you response was all that was left to me. Welcome to The Impossible Man, the true story of how the inability to move allowed one person to trade his humanity for odds-defying superpowers, and how he clawed his way back. Hi, and welcome to episode two of The Impossible Man. I am your host, Johnny B. Truant. Thanks to everyone who got in touch after the pilot. Clearly, a lot of you out there are interested, so we're going to continue. We're going to see what happens over another few episodes. If you are still into it, be sure to let us know. The first episode of the podcast was meant to be a complete overview of John's story and the podcast idea and the project that we're doing. And as such, we covered a lot of ground. We covered kind of John's general introduction, my general introduction, the project's introduction, as well as a lot of his attitudes and beliefs and the idea of this impossibility that he has cultivated. Now, when I followed up with John to do episode two, I wanted to be a little bit more organized, a little bit more linear. And as you heard in the previous show, I'm a fiction writer. So I'm looking at this story as if it were a fictional story, as if John were a character. And so I mapped out the markers that would appear in a story if John were fictional. And I'm beginning to explore some of those in this episode. Every character before they go on their journey begins in an ordinary world. And so that's a lot of what we covered in this is what was in John's early life? What were his attitudes when he was born? What were the dispositions of his parents and what were the influences there? And how did that propel him forward into the beginning of his arc where he originally had some emotion and then learned that he had to turn it off in order to protect himself? And that is the larger arc that we're going to continue on. And I have in mind what his inciting incident, his first act climax and all that good stuff is, but we're going to tackle them all in order. So in this one, we really go deep and you'll see the beginnings of how this unstoppability was forged and how John propelled himself forward and eventually got himself in some trouble that will spend the entire book trying to get himself out of. And interestingly, it has nothing to do with his disease, at least not as the main show. So here we are, continuing our discussion with episode two of The Impossible Man. All right, here we are back for session two. I guess we're calling this podcast The Impossible Man. That's an evolution. We didn't know that the first time. Are you happy with that? I am. Yeah. I, I may be unhappy with it later, but I reserve the right to be unhappy later, but for now I am. Yeah. You do. You do. Well, but I think it works as a good reminder because we've been focusing on your arc, and that is obviously the point of the book. But I I mean, we to some degree lost track of the point. That the whole idea was that it was we're also going to try and teach people how to do this. I asked you on the one we didn't record, the one we didn't share on the podcast. And I said, is that something you can teach? You can teach people how to do impossible things. And you said, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I was even thinking when this eventually becomes a book, maybe that'll become an addendum that no one gets on the podcast. What do you think of that idea? How to do impossible things so that they have to get the book. You can't just cheap out. Yeah, I'll write. You'll be able to pick it up if you're listening closely enough. But I can add a little manual, field manual to doing impossible things. I like this. That's the content marketer in both of us right yep. there. That's what that is. Um, all right. So what I did 
is um, in in between these, because last time was kind of an overview. We covered, we were all over the place. We covered kind of your mentality and your history and all that. But I think it might make sense with, you know, if we take diversions, that's fine. But as, as a general through line to begin kind of telling the story in chronological order. So I wrote down on my little cheat sheet here what I believe to be the act markers in your story. The way that I'm approaching this as the person who's going to be putting down the actual words is to suss out a character arc as if you were a fictional hero. So if you were a, 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 a protagonist in a book, there, there are certain points that you would go through. You would have You would begin in your ordinary world. You would have an inciting incident that kind of kicked you out of normal and taught you that something was needed attention. You would have the first act climax where you're going on a journey. You would have a midpoint where everything changes. That's the hallmark of the midpoint. You would have a dark night of the soul, which, spoiler, we kind of already know what the dark night of the soul is probably going to be. A second act climax where you're all in on this new information, this change that you're going to realize in your arc. And finally, resolution. And so I wrote down what I think are the act markers. And the 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 arc that we decided we were going to use was this idea of you were always confident, but in order to have that confidence, you were angry and emotionless in your words. Is that, that accurate? Yeah, definitely. So you kind of said, get out of my way world. I'll show you who I am. I'll show you what I can do. But it cost you empathy and personal relationships. Yep. I was a machine. So- well, so what I what I had here, and and so maybe we just kind of start with because um, I you know I've never done this before in a in a podcast. So I guess with the ordinary world, I'm imagining you. So this is what I'm imagining. I'm imagining young John. I mean, we have to start from the beginning, right? And so tell me the story as much as well as you can from the beginning. Now, one of the things we need to keep in mind as we do this is that at the beginning, your mom was Obi Wan. Right. She was she was the mentor. She was the one where you got your unstoppable, unbreakable sort of an attitude. So I imagine a lot of this is going to be her story. But where would you like to begin? Where does the John Morrow story begin? I mean, it might be interesting to know that when I was a young child, I was not emotionless. And you can actually see it in the photography um, from when I was a kid. When I was, I'd say, before... I had my back surgery. Uh, I was your average, normal, happy-go-lucky kid. And then somewhere along the way, I think it was my back surgery, the way my eyes looked completely changed. They became more dead, more distant. And they've never really, even now, regained the same quality I had when I was a child. When did you feel like you were different? Because you said at some point you became like another species, but was that after the back surgery or was that before? It probably started around the time I went to kindergarten. That was when this whole idea of otherness took root in my mind because I didn't feel like the other kids in kindergarten. And before kindergarten, I wasn't really around other kids that much. So it was the lack of comparison. You basically were able to believe that everybody is like this before that. I don't know if even the, the idea of having an identity had really taken root. And I remember my first day of kindergarten vividly for this very reason. Up until that age, my mother had never told me I was disabled. And I didn't know what the word meant. I, I had never heard the word. 
I knew I had SMA, but the whole idea of a disability or being handicapped was completely foreign to me. I, I didn't even know what those words meant. So when I went to school, I remember one of the children um, said, kind of pointed at me laughing and said, he's handicapped, like kids do. And I remember I said, what's that? And he like yelled out to the whole class, he doesn't know what handicap means. Ha 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 ha. And the whole class started laughing at me. And I broke down in tears, the teacher, because I was like, there's this word, I don't know what it means. Everyone else thinks I'm ridiculous because I don't know what it means. And the teacher took me outside and she said, you really don't know what handicap means? And I said, no, I don't. And she thought about it for a second. And she said, I think this is a conversation you're going to have to have with your mother. So I went through the whole day, like the whole day I was just like obsessed with. There's this word that I'm expected to know and no one will tell me what it means. And just feeling really frustrated with that. And I remember my mom picked me up from school and I went out to the car and she asked me how was your first day? And I just broke down crying again. And I said, they called me handicapped and I don't know what it means. And she got upset. I could see her like fuming. And I remember feeling scared because I thought she was mad at me for not knowing what it meant. She calmed down and she said, that's okay. It's true. And I said, but what does it mean? And I remember she was silent for a really long time. For me, it seemed like an eternity. It was probably one or two minutes. And she told me, it means you can't do something as well as someone else and you need help, is what she told me. I said, well, just like there were other kids who didn't know their ABCs. And I did. And she said, that's exactly right. We're all handicapped somehow. Paint a picture for me here. I'm assuming you were in a power wheelchair steered by, steered by a joystick. Is that correct? Yeah. And did you, I mean, there are usually rows in a classroom. Like, did you have an assigned place? Were you toward the back, toward the front? What did they do there? They always put me in the back because the way desks and aisles are put together, it's really hard to navigate a wheelchair to the front if the door is in the back. So the only time I ever ended up in the front was when the door to the classroom was in the front, which was not very common. So the taunting, for want of a better term. That happened before class began. You were there early. They came in and they hadn't met you before. It was during some sort of a group activity on the first. I don't remember what the group assignment was, but probably introduce yourself to the kids around you or something along those lines. But it was during class. So the teacher was paying attention and in charge of the class nominally and just kind of this just happened. Yep. Were you looking to the teacher for support or rescue and they just kind of let it go on? It didn't go on very long. Once the whole class started laughing at me, the teacher immediately told everyone to be quiet and took me outside. That point about handicap is is a really good one. Um, I've thought of it when people say to me, like, oh, you're really smart or something like that. And I'm like, yes, but you can fix a car and I can't fix my car. Like, it, it, you know, saying intellectual intelligence is somehow better has always struck me as odd. So this idea of you can't do some things that other people can do as well as they can do them, 
but conversely, you can do things better than other people did. Was that the dominant, like, did you, I guess I'm trying to get at, did you really, truly not, not feel in your bones that you were any different from them? At that point started a tension because my mother wanted to preserve the idea that I was the same as any other kid. And I instinctively understood that. But at the same time, because I had gotten laughed at, I also felt like an outsider. And that was when the feeling started. And the whole time I went through school, that sense of otherness just got stronger and stronger and stronger. So paint a picture of life before that. What was that home life like starting as early as you can remember or that feels formative? I was mostly just around my parents. I didn't, I had one other friend who had cerebral palsy. So I think in my mind, it wasn't abnormal to have any sort of physical condition because my only friend had cerebral palsy. And I remember my mother was friends with another lady who had a daughter with SMA. And I saw her occasionally. So there were no children in my life except for, I think I probably saw some other kids occasionally at like church for short amounts of time, but wasn't really friends with any of those kids. So that that was what my life was like. Okay. How far back do you remember? So you you began on Dying Mothers and Fighting for Your Ideas with the story about your like when you were born and the doctor saying, you know, there's something different going on with his legs, that sort of thing. What what are those stories can you tell me to to get this early picture? One of them was of me being diagnosed. Was it apparent from birth? No, it was not. And even in my photos before one year old, my father had like me dressed in sports stuff all the time. After one year old, I'm never dressed in sports stuff. And my father isn't in the picture anymore. And he's not in any photo after that point. What's your relationship with your father like? Because I've heard so much about your mom, but I can't tell if you had a good relationship with your dad or not. My relationship with my dad now is excellent, but my dad doesn't particularly like kids and was so scared that I was just going to die at any time that he emotionally and physically distanced himself from me and pretty much disappeared from my life until I was around the age of 18. How did he disappear? Did he, was, were they still married? Was he still around or did he move away? They were still married for, I think, 11 years, but he literally would come home after I went to bed. That was almost every day. So I actually saw him more after they got divorced, where he would take me for one day every two weeks. I saw him more at that point. And at the time, I did not understand why. And I was immensely hurt by it. Did your mom attempt to explain it? She did. She explained that it was a problem between them. But I knew instinctively that it wasn't just about her. I even remember thinking every time I would get straight A's, my dad would take me out for dinner to celebrate. And I remember thinking, I have to get straight A's or I'm never going to see my dad. And this was from almost the beginning, from when you went to school. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when you told that anecdote about you were mostly in sports stuff and then you were not, give me some context behind that. It sounds like maybe he wanted a sports star and then he realized he wasn't going to get one. And this was one more level of emotional distance to protect himself. Is that accurate? Yeah. My dad was very athletic. He got a baseball scholarship to go to college and um, he was probably a good enough golfer to be on the PGA Tour. He played golf a lot. My father is kind of a hustler in the most endearing possible way. The closest example I can think of is Mel Gibson from the movie Maverick. He's the spitting image of my father. He preferred to actually wait until other people won the PGA Tour, and then he would go challenge them to a money game. <laughs> and, he, and he would win. So, yeah, he was a hustler. So sports were everything to him, and he bet on everything. And the idea that I would never be able to play sports just crushed him. There are two ways to be crushed by your kid not playing sports. The first is that somehow you're so, you, you know, you're so invested in sports and it's, it's, it's literally that is a problem. And then the second is that it's kind of just one thing to grab onto with a larger issue. Like the fact that you couldn't play sports reminded him that you had what could end up being a terminal disease. Do you think it was more like that? I think it was the second one and it was his life was sports and business. And I was too young to understand business. So that left me with a complete lack of understanding of his life. In his mind, you don't like talk to your son. You play baseball with him. It, it was a form of communication where the idea of talking to me, I, I just don't think he knew how. You basically already said that you, you prioritized academics because that was a way to hopefully communicate with him. Is it true of business as well? Yes. When I turned 18, I was in that angry teenager stage. And I decided one day, I'm just going to have it out with you about this. It was one of those things. I tried to bring it up a few times, but it was always he would find a way to change the subject. When you say bring it up, you mean your disconnect? Yeah. I mean, my burning question was, why were you never around during my childhood? I, I didn't understand. Like everything I just told you, I, I didn't understand any of those things. I finally cut it out with him and he didn't say anything. He just let me yell at him for a while and he started to get tears in his eyes, but he just sat there. Then at the end, he went into a room that he had for storage and he brought out a, a pile of papers and he put them in front of me and it was this huge stack. And he told me, this is just one pile. So I have a whole room of these. These were one year of medical bills. And he said, I paid all of these your whole life. I know it's not what you needed for me, but it's all I had. I wasn't strong enough to be there for you emotionally. I didn't know how to connect with you. And the easiest thing to do was to bury myself in my work and just try to forget about the whole thing. And he said, I'm so, so sorry. I would give anything to change it, but I just can't. So this reminds me of when you see a personality disconnect in, say, a relationship with like a marriage or something. And there was this kind of humorous way I'd heard it mentioned once with, I don't remember, there are two certain types involved here. 
one person says, you never tell me that you love me. And the other one says, I'll tell you if I ever stop loving you. Like if there's ever a problem, I'll let you know. You can just assume that everything is fine until then. So do you see that? um, Because when I'm hearing that, I don't know if you intended it this way, but when you say he went into his office and he picked up a stack of medical bills, if in a movie there would be music swelling behind that because that's the moment where that is the way, at least in my, I, I don't know what your impression is. I don't know what his is. That is a way that he was showing his love in the only way he could. Do you see it that way at all? I do. Even at age of 18, I instantly understood. I remember looking through the stack and just that one year was like almost half a million dollars. So we're talking very large amounts of money that he spent. I said something along the lines of, I can't believe it cost this much. He said, of all of my investments, you were the greatest. Hmm. I was dying of pneumonia when I was 16. It was very interestingly the last time I had pneumonia. And it was incredibly bad. One of my lungs was completely full of mucus. The other lung was half full. My lungs were already only about half developed. So I was operating on... 25% of my lung capacity, which would be like 12.5% of a fully healthy person. So I was, I was like literally, the doctors thought it could be ours and I would be dead. And it was one of the many times where they told me, we don't think you're going to make it. And there was a drug that I had been keeping up with and my mother at Duke University. I lived in Charlotte and it was not approved by the FDA yet. They were still in trials for uh, pneumonia. And when it got to the point where it was so bad, they were certain I was going to die. They called Duke again and said, listen, he's going to die. Can we give him the drug? There's nothing to lose. And they said, yes, but it's going to take us four hours to drive it there. And they weren't sure I was going to, to make it. So my father pulled out his checkbook and said, how much to have a brother on the helicopter? They said 40 grand and he paid it. Like 30, 45 minutes later, I had the drug. It was a drug that they gave you in the nebulizer machine. So it was like a mist. It's called Plumazine. I remember later this went on to be sold for like $1,000 a dose. They gave it to me and it immediately liquefied all of the mucus in my lungs. They turned me over a bucket and it was almost like I was vomiting out of my lungs, this like liquid mucus. And when I got done, they did an x-ray and my chest was clear. And this was like two hours after they gave me the drug and I've never had pneumonia again. I know that pneumonia has been a big deal for you. You've had it, what, 17 times? 16. I had it every year until 16 and then never after that. Do you have any idea why? I can guess. I have rational and irrational guesses. Rational guesses are, um, I also graduated high school at 16 and I wasn't in such close proximity to kids anymore. So I was just around less bacteria. I think that's a possibility. I'd also gotten weaker to the point where I could no longer touch my face at the age of 16. So maybe that affected it. Those are my rational reasons. My irrational reason is I felt like 
in that moment, something was decided between me and God. And I couldn't articulate it or put my finger on it, but that's what I felt like. The agreement was I wasn't going to die. That if I was going to die, that was the time. How many times have you almost died since then? Never from pneumonia, but almost died. I'd really have to think. Let's say at least a half a dozen, if not a dozen. You said that the drug was on your radar, the palmazyme. Why was it on your radar? Yeah, that goes back to the methodology. Because I was obsessive about tracking any drug that could keep me alive, even those that were not approved by the FDA. Because I knew that pneumonia was my number one risk. And so at the age of 10 or 11, I started reading about the anatomy of, of lungs and really really understanding lungs. I mean, better than I can talk to any pulmonologist about the anatomy of a lung and how pneumonia works. I also researched every drug that could help me, both ones that were approved and ones that weren't. How'd your family pay for this? How did they afford it? My dad had probably made 10 to $20 million in real estate. And he'd spent, well, number one, he'd gotten taxed half of that. He'd also been through multiple divorces. And so there goes another half. So maybe, let's say he kept two or three million, four million of that money. And nearly all of that had gone to my medical bills. What do you think would have happened if he hadn't had that? I'd be dead. So there was no scenario in which a program or insurance would have made up the difference? I was unable to get insurance. They would not give me traditional insurance uh, before Obamacare. And also, Medicaid had an income test for your parents. And my dad always made too much money for me to get Medicaid. There were no options other than for him to pay. If he had less money, maybe you could have qualified for Medicaid, but I imagine you would have gotten a different quality of care, right? They would have not paid for a helicopter or many of the other things. I had physical therapists that saw me like two to three times a week. And like, I didn't know it, but Who's paying $100 a session for those physical therapists? So there were a lot of things I was not aware of that he was paying for. So I'm going to put you on the spot with what I think is probably a pretty difficult question, but I'm just curious. So, you know, we're, we're toying with the idea of the impossibility, like doing the impossible, using your personal volition, using your force of will. But there are elements of this story that feel almost like providence. Right. Like you couldn't control how much money your dad made. You couldn't control the timing of various things that worked out just right. I'm just curious, and maybe this is out of line. I don't know. But do you have any, like, what are your beliefs in terms of spirituality or faith or coincidence or universal alignment or any of that stuff? Do you put any stock in any of that? I definitely believe in God. In terms of religious tradition, I've become less and less connected to any particular religion. I was raised Christian. I still have very strong Christian leanings as far as my faith. But as far as the religious orthodoxy of Christianity, it, it's a complete turn off to me. More around the principles that are attractive to me. And as far as supernatural beliefs, I 100% believe that some supernatural things have happened in my life that God, for some reason, has decided to keep me here. I have no idea why. Do you feel a need to live up to that? Like 
you were spared in some way, shape, or form, and so you'd better perform? Yeah. It's my name. My name means Jehovah's Gift. From birth, my mother even told me, your name doesn't mean that you were a gift to me. You were a gift to the world. So if you were to guess as to what any of that means, as to what what you might be here for, do you have any guesses? To show people what's possible would be my closest guess. If you were raised Christian, I'm guessing your parents were both religious. Is that accurate? My mother was. My dad kind of went along because she made him. Is that a big driver as to why she believed that she could take care of you or that you were destined to, to survive or any of that? Yeah, this is a story that I haven't told. Right before my first birthday, that's when she was told I would live until the age of two. And so she just prayed. Like, we're talking huge amounts of prayer, like four to eight hours a day for that entire year. And she's convinced that before my next birthday, before my second birthday, that like either the day of or the day before, that God told her he will be spared. Did the second birthday have sort of a deadline feel to it? Almost like if if you could, if she could get you to your second birthday, then there was some element of, okay, I made it. And that took off some of the pressure to, to various degrees. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who's listening to this or who will read the book, who's an atheist, who is like, eh, I don't believe it. Would you have any response to that? Yeah, I, I have friends who are atheists. Faith is often the way we explain the unexplainable. What I look at is you either believe that God exists and that he has a plan for my life, or you believe that I'm the luckiest man in history. One of the two. And I don't think there are really other options. If you want to, you can chalk it up to luck. But I don't personally believe it's possible for anyone to be that lucky. It would be the equivalent of rolling snake eyes like a thousand times in a row. That's how lucky you would have to be. And that rolling snake eyes a thousand times in a row is surviving things that were absolutely supposed to kill you according to all the doctors. It's, it's a sequence of those things. Even getting a father who could afford to pay all those medical bills, it's either luck or providence. Where does your impossibility thinking, your volition, your stubbornness, your reading the FDA you know, clearing on drugs and stuff. Where does that fit in? So if it's because on one pole is extreme luck, that's entirely passive and you're lucky. And on the other extreme is that God is, you know, somehow having a plan for your life. And again, you're passive in that. So where where do you put your efforts and your ability to do the impossible, implying some action on your part? My mother's attitude, I don't think she ever said this explicitly. But her attitude was, God agreed to let you live because I spent a year in prayer. So it was action, result. And so I very much grew up with the mentality that, yes, there was opportunity. Yes, God had a plan for my life. But it's something I had to fight for. There are some characterizations of prayer that are almost like a deep meditation that a yogi might do to slow down a 
his heartbeat or something like that, or things that aren't normally in control, but but prayer being equated to, let's say, something that doesn't necessarily need to be religious in nature, but that it's something that it has an effect because of various other things that might be new age or not. Where do you come down on any of that? I don't know. Do you pray? I do. I do. And I feel the connection to something larger than myself when I pray. Do I hear words speaking back to me? No, I don't. But I feel a connection to something larger. It feels like there's something there. Okay, so let's go back to early life. So this is me pausing and, and going back to this is pre-kindergarten. Can you give me some some flavor there? Some some like how did you spend your days? How you, you mentioned that you had a friend or two, you had the friend with cerebral palsy and 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 all that. How were your days spent? What did you do? What were you into? What were your interactions? I was into this makes me smile now. I was I was into W what was it, WWF wrestling. I love wrestling. I loved monster trucks. I loved electric remote control cars. I loved action figures. I had a whole bunch of like soldiers and G.I. Joe and everything, action figures. I idolized Michael Jordan. And part of the reason was because my father was friends with Michael Jordan's father. They were really close friends. So I got to meet Michael several times. I, I just idolized him. So I had Mike, Michael Jordan paraphernalia all over the place that he gave me and signed. Did he give you any of that stereotype sports personality words of encouragement and advice? He never said much of anything to me. I think that every now and again, he would make like a tour through the hospital, see all the sick kids. And I think to him, I was a friend of his parents and just kind of a, another stop along the way. I would be surprised if he remembers me because he, he did what he did for me for a lot of kids. Other than that close connection to Michael Jordan, I don't feel like my life was all that different from your average less than five-year-old boy, maybe a little bit less physical. I like to go fishing with a, with a bobber, a little float thing. Um, and I would catch because we lived on a lake, Lake Norman. And, um, my dad would just take the fish and throw them back. I do remember at the age of about four years old, I don't know if it was the first time I caught a fish, but it was the first time my dad was with me when I caught a fish. And he took the hook out. He put it on, I don't know, we call them stringers. They're these strings with like hooks on them to keep the fish until you're ready to, to leave. And when we left, he gave me the stringer and he said, carry it home. And so I did. I went inside, showed it to my mother, showed her my little tiny fish that I caught. And my dad pulled out a cutting board and put the fish on the cutting board and gave me a knife and said, cut off its head. It was moving. I don't know if it was still alive. And my mother started to like say, no, don't do that. And he got really mad. And he said, let him do it. Still, I'd used my hands at the time. So I cut off its head and I was still crying, probably even harder. And he slapped, not hard, but enough to get my attention. And um, he said, never be ashamed of putting food on the table for your family. What do you think that was about? Do you think that was about an yet another defensive mechanism that he had that he wanted you to be capable? Or do you think that that was a 
like a real lesson that you then took later. Because like you said earlier, this is going to benefit my checking account and I'm not ashamed of it. That sounds like cousin to it. I think it was the same lesson that he would have taught any son. It was a very hard lesson about the role of a man in the world is that you had to not pay attention to your emotions and you had to take care of your family and you had to put food on the table, which would be a, a, a metaphor for money. Well, I'm noticing some synchronicities here, and I'm wondering if they're just imagined or if they're real synchronicities. So first of all, you made the comparison in the first episode about your friend who wrote the book comparing entrepreneurs to hunters, to hunter-gatherers. So that's a direct connection. And it makes me wonder, you said that you need to ignore your emotions and just do what needs to be done. And you're talking at age four. And at age five, you started kindergarten. And I'm guessing that's when you developed some of that emotional intensity and that that kind of like beginning of the emotionlessness. Was there any connection there? Probably so. That's the first time I can remember. Well, that was one other time. I needed a shot. I don't remember if it was a vaccine or what it was, but I was young. I was probably two or three years old. And my father took me to the doctor. And I kept trying to run away from the doctor every time the doctor would try to give me the shot. And when the doctor gave me the shot, I started crying. And my dad smacked me hard when I started crying and told me, don't cry. I remember I kept crying even harder then. And he told me, I'm going to keep hitting you until you stop. And I stopped. This was age what again? Two or three. So do you think that this was all, because what I'm hearing is latent suggestions that your mind later capitalized on. Yeah. It sounds like you got these suggestions from your dad, whether you realized it or not. And then later when when it, it, it's almost like, oh, turning that off is an option. Do you think there's a connection there? I definitely chose to turn off my emotions and I realized it was an option. I also, in retrospect, do not think I would have survived if I kept my emotions on. Early school years, you mean? Up until... Probably about the age of 12. Those were immensely painful years. And then around 12 was when you said, I'm going to turn this off. No, it was even earlier. I probably started I probably started in kindergarten. Well, that was also on my questions to ask was, what did you do when those kids were, were laughing at you and stuff? Did, did you take it for a little while and then, and then turn? I remember taking it until the first grade. And I remember... In the first grade, I deliberately picked out the biggest bully in the class and became friends with him so that nobody would mess with him. How'd you do that? The first thing I did, I walked up and I gave him one of my video games. And I said, have you played this? And he said, no. I said, well, you can have it. And we started playing video games together after that. I remember he came to my house one time and my father said he can't ever come back because his father is a drug dealer. So he never got to come back. But he was a he was a badass, though. It sounded like, is this the kind of kid who brought a knife to school? He was that kind of kid, yeah. Can you tell me anything else about him? Like what he looked like, the sort of trouble he got into, anything like that? He was black. He was really tall. He was poor. I don't think I realized at the time. Like the kind of poor where all of his clothes were used. He didn't have anything new. I remember he struggled to read and I helped him. He used to read to him, but only when no one was around and no one could see. 
Did he have a crew that he ran with and a tough guy image to uphold? Later on in second or third grade, he did. And he stopped having anything to do with me. Well, that's what I was going to wonder is you would think that that kind of kid might have an initial prejudice, but it sounds like in first grade, he didn't. No. And that worked that that kept the other kids at bay because you were with him. Yep. And so what happened when your protector wasn't around anymore in second grade and beyond? One time I got my arm broken. I always had quite a mouth on me. I learned to give more than I got. I learned to defend myself with words to the point that people would eventually get mad enough to become physically violent, even knowing that I was in a wheelchair, because I would just make them feel so stupid. And one day, I don't remember what I said, but one of the kids uh, pulled my arm around behind my wheelchair and um, told me to take it back or he was going to break my arm. And I didn't take it back. And he broke my arm. This was like uh, your ordinary suburban high school. What was the what was the kind of the makeup and the demographic and all that? I know it was in Charlotte. This was even before high school. Um, this was a middle school, seventh or eighth grade. A lot of poor kids, public school. He was definitely a poor kid. I ended up becoming friends with him afterward. I'd had so many broken bones up to that point. I knew it wasn't broken all the way through, that it was only cracked. And so I didn't tell my mother. And I never went to the doctor. But to this day, I can still very easily tell if a bone's broken and how bad. I didn't cry when he broke it. I didn't make a sound. And the next day, I remember I stole all of his books out of his backpack and hit him. And he couldn't do his homework and started getting zeros on all of his homework assignments. And I told him, I took your books and I'm not giving them back unless you apologize. In elementary school, and I guess into middle school, what was kind of your role in the high school? Because early on, you paint a picture as a kid who definitely took some shit, and it sounds like along the way, but it also sounds like your mouth got you in trouble as much as or more than just kind of like spontaneous bullying. So like, were you kind of like a rascal? Were you popular in certain quarters? Were you quiet and you vanished into the background? Like, what were your relationships? What was all that like? I was an intellectual bully. I would not have called it that at the time. But looking back, that's exactly how I was. So lording your intelligence or manipulating people or both? Both. Give me some examples of the sorts of things that you would do. The worst example is there was another kid in the wheelchair that was not as smart as me. Kid Desheen's muscular His name was Josh. And the school couldn't afford to pay for two caregivers. So they put us both in the same class. So one caregiver could help us both. So I was in every class with Josh for several years. And um, I used to do anything I could do, say anything I could say on a daily basis to make him rage to the point of not having any sense in his head. He used to cry when things got really bad. So I used to make crying faces behind the teacher's back, like pouty lips at him and like whine at him when the teacher wasn't looking. I eventually figured out that his mother was a soft spot. So I would make up long convoluted stories about his mother doing terrible things and tell it to a crowd of kids. Terrible things like embarrassing, like sexual things. Yep. Why did you do that? In my mind, the only way to be safe was to make other people afraid of me. And he was the easy one to pick on that no one else would mess with me. 
So it was a little like attacking the biggest guy in prison on day one. Yeah, and I was ruthless. We used to race, too. And in multiple years, he never beat me at a race, even when he had a faster chair. Because I would literally plan the angles to run into his chair and to rip the wheels off. I mean, one time I even remember I hit into his chair and part of the metal on his chair made a big gash down my leg, probably like a three-inch gash. And I just kept racing. And one time he had another kid push him to try to win. And I took my footrest, which are really hard aluminum, and I hit them in the back of the knees as going as fast as I could. And they couldn't walk after that. So yeah, I was just absolutely vicious. Did people like you? Like, did you have, were you, you were popular? I was, yeah. But it was mostly because nobody else liked Josh. And because they didn't want me to do that to them. Where was the progress of your emotionlessness at this point? Were you fully like, okay, I'm just going to do what I need to survive and I don't give a shit about anybody else? I was 80% there. Did your mom watch this and did she have thoughts on it? I was so good at manipulating it and hiding it. My mom never saw it and neither did any teacher. So you were convinced this was the this was the secret, right? Like this was the way to survive. It didn't strike you as wrong at the time? No. Because it was survival. It was survival, yeah. Was high school any different? Was high school more of the same? High school, I went 100% there. But I was more isolated from the other kids. I had a caregiver of my own. He was very good to me. In many ways, he was a father to me. He was my caregiver for 16 years. He was the ex-bus driver for the high school. And because I had a fully grown man with me, nobody, nobody messed with him. I didn't need to defend myself, but it was intensely important to me that the teacher always knew I was the smartest kid. So you didn't feel the need to defend yourself, but you did feel an intensity to prove yourself. In some ways, it was the same thing. If another kid spoke up in class and their answer wasn't perfect, I would pick it apart. So it sounds to me as a third party, like you were maximizing maybe the evil side of what your mom told you originally. I mean, a euphemism for handicapped is differently abled, but in this case, it sounds like that is literally how you were approaching it, is it was you had some shortcomings, other people had shortcomings, but they were both shortcomings. And that's kind of what this sounds like to me. Is that accurate, that you were just trying to emphasize your strengths so that the shortcomings weren't noticed? You're being nice putting it that way. It was more of you took advantages of my weaknesses now I'm going to take advantage of yours. How's that feel looking back? It feels terrible. The, the final year that I was in school, Josh was in a different class. He wasn't tormented by me anymore. I graduated two or three years before he did. I graduated a year early, and I think he graduated a year late. He was not the sharpest pencil. It was a struggle for him to get through school. I remember going up to him at lunch around graduation and apologizing. He told me he hated my guts and to get the fuck out of the way. About three or four years later, he died. And I called his mom and asked why she didn't invite me to the funeral. She told me he hated your guts until he died and so do I. How much of that played into kind of a wake-up call for things to change? Or was that after you'd already begun to kind of pick away at that? By that point, when his mother told me that, I felt nothing. So if you felt nothing, what inspired you to apologize in the first place? There was something still trying to be a good person. And I think 
it was because a part of me felt like, yes, it's okay for me to use my intellectual gifts to embarrass other kids who have normal bodies. But here's a kid who had neither intellectual or physical gifts. And this is what you did. And I felt some shame. But it was mostly intellectual, it sounds like, rather than deeply emotional. Yeah, it wasn't emotional. When he told me he hated me, I I felt nothing. So when you look back on that person that you were back then, what would you tell that kid? I'm trying to get a comparison between mature John and early John, and it feels tragic. There's nothing you could have told me. The only thing, the only way out was to break me. And so that's what life did. Life broke you. Was there an event? The thing that broke me was when my girlfriend was right. That's what broke me. That was much later though, correct? Yeah. I had started the process of healing at that point, but it was like this final huge blow. That was more difficult than anything I experienced myself. And part of the reason was it didn't happen to me. So you had to develop empathy because otherwise you never would have felt anything for it. Yeah. What were some of those early markers back in sort of the Josh era? I was in Boy Scouts and I used to teach other kids in Boy Scouts. I never felt the need to prove my superiority in Boy Scouts. Because it was a different environment? I mean, if I had to logically guess the answer, it's because my dad didn't care. You felt that your dad cared in school subconsciously? Yeah. I had to be the best. All right, everybody, just Johnny again here. I'm just going to close this up by just reminding everybody this is still kind of a pilot. We're going to keep going for a while because we got enough feedback that people were interested in this, that it was piquing some curiosity, but it's not a lot of people. And so if there are more of you and you you really want to make yourselves known, please do that. Again, the way to do that is to contact John at John Morrow on Twitter. That's J-O-N-M-O-R-R-O-W. You can find me at johnnybtruant.com. I do have the H, J-O-H-N-N-Y-B-T-R-U-A-N-T.com. And something to note is that people have asked sort of about this process. What is this process of taking a fictional structure and attempting to put a real person into it? If you are curious about that, I created kind of a little cheat sheet as to how I'm going through this and how I'm using this fictional structure, this hero's journey structure to find John's arcs. But if you subscribe at my website at johnnybtruant.com, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. If you do that, then in the first email that you get, I will link you to a page where I wrote out the steps of this process. So hopefully that's a little bit more understandable. But as with anything, you have any questions, questions for me, questions for John, questions about the project, don't hesitate to get in touch. Thank you for listening. We will be back next time with episode three, where we'll begin to see how John's arc continued and how it expanded and how that emotional callus began to grow and how it got him into some trouble. For both of us, thanks for listening.